I'm Avery Smith, and you're listening to Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, a multi-faith podcast of transgender stories. y'all. I am so pumped for you to hear this episode. I'm pretty sure I say that just about every month, but hey, first off, it's true every month. And second, this particular episode has been months in the making. In it, you will hear the stories and insights of a number of trans and non-binary persons about ideas of solidarity and allyship, intersectionality, and wholeness. If you've listened to past episodes of Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, you may recognize some of the voices you'll hear. Along with new participants who emailed me statements to read on their behalf, we've also got clips from conversations with Dr. S.J. Krasno, Mix Chris Page, and Andy Thornton, all of whom have been on the show before. I am grateful to everyone who shared something for this episode. There are few topics more important than solidarity and intersectionality, few more vital lessons to learn than how to show up for one another in ways that address the interconnectedness of all forms of oppression. To kick us off, we have Hadassah, who, among other things, brings up the complexities of the term allyship, which seems like a good place to start the conversation. They also discuss the wholeness of persons who cannot be fragmented into their various identities but must be respected and supported as holistic human beings. I read Hadassah's submission on their behalf. Call me Hadassah. I am a black Jew. Yes, we exist. Here's what I want to say about allyship. If you're going to be an ally to me, you have to be an ally to every single piece of me. Not just my blackness, not just my transness, not just my Jewishness, but all of me. Because I am all of those things and more. I am also disabled, an artist, and a swimmer. I'm a parent and a sibling and a caretaker who needs care too. If there's a part of me you don't approve of or support, then don't pretend to be my ally. Don't say you accept my transness while continuing to be racist or not invested in justice for black people. Don't say you're anti-racist if you're a transphobe. Because if you aren't showing up for all of us, you aren't helping any of us. Also, I don't personally care whether you want to call yourself an ally or accomplice or co-conspirator as long as you're actually showing up and doing the work but I know that some folk don't trust the word ally anymore because people act like it's just a thing you can say you are without having to take real action. Some say that accomplice and co-conspirator do a better job at describing what we need from you, which is someone who is willing to put themselves at risk for us, to get in there and fight with us and maybe get arrested for that. Maybe lose a job for that. Maybe lose family or friends for that. 
I cherish my Jewish point of view because God calls us to protect the poor, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, aka the most disenfranchised among us at any cost, including the way the prophets speak truth to power and sometimes get arrested for that. A few other things. One, listen to us. Don't assume you know what we need. Listen to us and figure out what we say we need because we know better than you do. Just like I will do the same for you when you have needs. Next thing is wherever possible, lift up our voices instead of talking for us. It's like the saying, pass the mic. Let the people who are actually experiencing the oppression be the ones to talk about it when they want to. But there might be times when we say we want you to do the talking, so be ready for that too. Last thing is just to remember that we are all holistic, and we can only be whole as individuals and as communities when we attend to ourselves in holistic ways, instead of trying to fix one issue at a time. Don't let people fragment you into pieces. Insist on your wholeness being accepted and respected. It's the same as whole communities, too. A community is whole only when the different pieces of it are held together and respected. That, to me, is the journey we are all on as co-conspirators. The journey of helping each other be whole. Thank you, Hadassah. I think a piece of my conversation with Andy Thornton, whom y'all might remember is a queer Quaker in England, expands on these ideas of being co-conspirators with each other, of marginalized people joining in solidarity with other marginalized people, calling out intra-community prejudices and resisting assimilation. So here's a clip of Andy speaking with me about a queer Bible study that they attended at England's Greenbelt Festival several years ago. I was at a queer Bible study and the leader asked, you know, why, why are people here? And somebody put their hand up and they said, I'm straight, but I'm disabled. And I know that if we are going to get rights and, and get accepted, we have to help each other. And I was like, Shh, like flip. I am yeah. not a good disabled, like a good ally at all to the disabled community. Mm. Like, and I think it's, it's something we were saying earlier, you know, it's so easy to, to just focus on your thing. Mm -hmm. That's something that I'm, I'm trying really hard to work on, but it's so important because together, like if we are unified, then we can support each other and we, we can have a voice. Yeah. The way those with power keep their power is by keeping us divided and making us think that we're all separate and have our own separate little fights. And like, it works really well, especially, okay, especially for like the LGBT community. Like mm -hmm. it's a matter of there are disabled people amongst us. There are people of color amongst us. And so yeah. when we pretend that racism and ableism are not our issues, mm -hmm. we're choosing which queer people we actually consider part of our community. Yeah. And also our community, like the queer community and the rights that we have are built on the work of black trans women. You know, mm, yes yeah. do not forget it so it's mm. just it's just terrible that so often in in lgbt culture which is kind of influenced by so i did a lot of this when i was um 
like doing my research is all about assimilation and in the 70s like in order to achieve what they felt was you know equal rights uh, the lgbt kind of activism was all focused around assimilation into mainstream Mm. culture which meant racism ableism and you know the exclusion of trans people yeah you know we are probably complicit in maintaining some of those and i think like yeah you know that's something that i certainly have been trying to work on is that as a white person i have to accept that anti-racism is a daily thing and i will get it wrong and Mm -hmm. and it's my responsibility to to be better and i think you know Mm -hmm. there's again there's something very christian in that of you know we know that we will never be perfect and we will always pale in comparison and sin will get in but that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that every day you shouldn't try. Yeah, yeah. But it also, you know, doesn't mean that you should destroy yourself and cons- be consumed with guilt because that doesn't help mm-hmm. anyone. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and and it's, a, it's the fundamental human trait to not want to be an other and thus to other others, mm-hmm. <laughs> to mm-hmm. other, you know, people who aren't us so that we can be included because... How yeah. can we be included in a group if everyone's included in the group? But that's something that, yeah. you know, we have to fight. Our next participant is also learning how to be in solidarity with marginalized groups to which they don't belong. And I'm honestly excited for them because they're still a young teen and they're already discovering how vital that kind of solidarity is. Like William, I am a white person who grew up in the Midwest. But unlike William, I was mostly oblivious to the racism around me until I went off to college. I'm thankful that William has already embarked on this journey of solidarity and protest, even though it's not an easy journey. Here's his story, read by me on his behalf. Hello, my name is William. I am a 14-year-old who loves watching superhero shows, reading the Bible, and crocheting. I am non-binary, my pronouns are they, them, or he, him. I love church, and I read prayers and scriptures for church quite often. I live in Missouri. I've lived in Missouri my whole life, and I used to think that Missouri is a super diverse and kindly place just because my cousins are Asian. Yeah, that's not true about Missouri being super amazing, I guess. So I've been going to protests and listening to my cousins and friends and the news and just trying my best. I like church. The denomination I'm in is Community of Christ. There's a group called Harmony that LGBTQ people and allies are in that has a sacred pause worship service every month. Church is a place where I feel myself. I'm out to more people at church than at school. And people at least try to use the right pronouns for me, unlike at school. On the topic of getting people's pronouns right and finding affirmation and support within faith communities, here's a clip from the wonderful Mixed Chris page on that very thing. I absolutely adore their suggestion here to allies of non-binary folk, both those who are cisgender and those who are binary trans. 
there's a certain level of like conflict avoidance that yeah. goes into the process. Yeah, okay. it's challenging. It's really like, hard. What do you do? Do you, do you interrupt worship for the brothers and sisters? Oh. And what about yeah. siblings? Like, and it's usually so well, like with brothers and sisters, it's yeah. so it's well-meaning. They're trying to yeah. gather. They're trying yeah. to collect this family. <laughs> a word for allies listening to this, because my, my friend and colleague, Louis Mitchell, who I co-founded TransFaith with when we made it into mm-hmm. an organization, mm-hmm. he will actually stand up in the middle of worship and just be like, cut it out. We've been talking oh about. Oh my this gosh, for, I adore that. I love. Right, we've that. been talking about this for a decade. You need to stop it. Yeah. And you know what? If you have, especially if it's an ally, because if we do it, then mm. we're disruptive and we get to be marginalized as that angry whatever category yep. of identity we are. Yep. But if if our allies do that kind of disruption, oh. right, and say we will not tolerate the abuse of our siblings in this way anymore, it only takes about once. Because mm-hmm. if you know, mm-hmm. if you know, Lewis is sitting there and he's going to interrupt yeah. your sermon, the conflict avoidance works then to the benefit of change, right? Mm. Like the conflict yeah. avoidance is, I don't want Lewis standing up in the middle of worship yeah. Yeah. to do this again. So I'm going to get it right. Oh, I'm oh, motivated yeah. as yeah. opposed to us bearing the, the, the burden oh, yes. of being like, oh, do I have to interrupt? Do I have to interrupt? They get to make yes. the decisions. So yeah, it's, it's powerful ally work. Like Chris, I'm thankful for those who are willing to disrupt injustice to make spaces welcoming when necessary. Our next submission comes from Elliot, who thankfully has found an affirming faith community after lacking such a space. Elliot is 21 years old and lives in the United States, and I read on his behalf. I'm a transmasculine person who uses he, him pronouns. I am also a Roman Catholic. God gave me a great gift a year and a half ago, because that's when I joined my current parish. Being a transgender Catholic, I don't have very many opportunities for support from a faith community. Our leaders say that who I am is a danger to society, and that I am intrinsically disordered. I've been in some faith communities that were incredibly bad and toxic for me, especially in regards to my queer identity. But in February of 2019, I joined a new parish and found the sort of community I never thought I could have. They have a group specifically for LGBT Catholics, something I never in a million years thought would exist. I remember the first meeting I attended, a Lent event talking about LGBT people in the church. I was so nervous, sure everyone would spot that I didn't belong. I was sort of right because when I got there, I was the youngest in the crowd by a long shot. When the talk started, though, I quickly realized that I was among my people. When people asked questions, they showed the same mix of love and anger I myself feel towards the church. And so I got up the courage to ask a question of my own my voice shaking with nervousness and on the brink of tears because the topic was so emotional to me. When I spoke, I was met with acceptance and support, and after the talk, people came up to me and told me I was brave. These people, a mix of LGBT people and allies, were genuinely supportive and kind towards me. I've never felt that sort of support for me in my identity as a Catholic trans person. I truly believe that finding my faith community was a gift from God. This faith community has let me believe that he is looking out for me again. 
Cisgender people can support us by simply listening to our stories and uplifting our voices. Trans people have valuable perspectives on faith, perspectives that are so often ignored that finding support from cisgender people of faith can seem impossible. But when it did happen for me that cisgender Catholics actually found my perspective as a trans person of faith valuable, and I finally got the listening ear that I'd always found was given solely to cis people, I felt more support than I ever thought I would get. I don't expect the Catholic Church to change, but I do appreciate when Catholic people actually give me the respect as a Catholic that they would give to any other parishioner. That's actually what I learned at that first meeting of the LGBT group. The church may not be changing, but the numbers show that the laity are beginning to accept us. Cisgender lay Catholics are still learning how to listen to their trans siblings, but when they can recognize the divine within us, they can become our allies. We are all God's children. We are all made in his image. People act as if trans people are somehow exempt from being made in the image of God, but that's just not true. God is, according to Catholic theology, genderless. In that way, my relationship with God has only strengthened with my transition, and that I now know what it is to be both male and female, just like God. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says that the divine image shines forth in the communion of persons. I hope that someday cis people will recognize that the Holy Spirit is present when trans people gather together to support one another. When I am among my trans friends, I see their divinely formed souls, and I feel the gift of the Holy Spirit among us. One day, the world won't think twice about seeing the holy within trans people. But for now, that's enough for me. As someone who is also Catholic, it makes my heart sing that Elliot was able to find an affirming Catholic community. Still, not everyone is able to find nourishment in Christianity. Our next submission comes from someone whose experience of Christianity is too connected to whiteness and assimilation for it to bring her life. I read this anonymous person's story on her behalf. I will keep this short and not use my name because I'm not out to everyone, including my dad, and I depend on him for help paying for college, and I don't think he would react well at all about me being a transgender woman. That's not about race. He is African-American, and I am Afro-Caribbean through my mom. She is from the Caribbean. I won't say which island because it links too much to me, but she is super supportive of me. White people like to think that people of color, especially everyone in so-called third world countries, are all transphobic because it makes them feel superior and progressive, but that's not true. It's actually white supremacy and colonialism and the shit you forced on my people that brought transphobia to cultures that used to regard gender nonconformity as holy. That is what poisoned my dad. He's belonged to a Christian church his whole life that teaches transphobia and homophobia because of white influence. So if you're white, especially if you're Christian, don't forget your privilege doesn't go away just because you're trans. 
I also want to say for anyone listening who has kids, make sure your kids know that they can come out to you and you will accept them and protect them. My mom has been so good about that. She and dad are divorced, but she promises she will defend me if he finds out that I'm a woman. Mom is also helping me learn more about the practices of our people. I stopped being Christian when I was 10, but now I want to get spirituality back in my life. Just not white informed Christian spirituality. I want to connect to something that feels African, black led and black empowering, and also woman empowering. I want to connect to my ancestors. So mom is helping me explore She was never into religion much herself, but she remembers growing up with her mom and aunties and learning from them. So I'm excited to keep learning, because religion is so much bigger than Christianity or whiteness. Changing, growing, learning more about who we are. These are things that Dr. S.J. Krasno and I also discussed way back in February. SJ teaches at a small Missouri university and studies how queer and trans Jews engage in and shape Judaism, which you can hear more about in that February episode. Before we dive into a new clip from that old conversation, SJ has a few updates on their life for you all. Here's what they say. I'm doing what I can for self-care and to be involved in local activism, especially trying to push anti-racism within my university alongside some colleagues. In terms of my academic work, I am working on finishing up my book manuscript on contemporary queer and trans Jews in the U.S., and I'm excited to have an article coming out in the Journal of the American Academy of Religion around December focused on connections between white supremacy, anti-Jewishness, and anti-transness called I Want to Look Transgender, Anti-Assimilation, Self-Determination, and Confronting White Supremacy in the Creation of a Just Judaism. We also just adopted a kitten who we have yet to name but are very excited about. So that's an update from SJ. My wife Leah and I also very recently adopted a kitten whom we named Flapjack, so I was delighted to hear about SJ's new kitty. Anyway, let's get into this clip from my old conversation with SJ, in which we talk first about how the U.S. government attempts to violently regulate our bodies and identities, and then about privilege and what responsibility we have to bring our whole selves, including our bodies, into our activism. So like I was saying, like this idea that there's like all these other versions of me that have come before and like all these other versions of me that will come after Um, And it feels like I'm all of those things simultaneously, like not to use that kind of like cliche of like, we contain multitudes, but like, it's somewhat fitting here, I think. Yeah. But so like, the way that I think it comes into tension with the government that I've been thinking about a little bit in my work recently, and like, there are other people, other people who are more expert on this, who are trans scholars, who've written some cool stuff. But so it comes into tension with like, the reality that there are government um, apparatuses that often function through like attempting to make human beings static mm-hmm. and so that are increasingly using like certain kinds of biometric data, for example, um, to do that. And one example that I think of and that like I've heard a number of trans people talk about is the experience of going through the body scan machines at the airport. Yes. I don't yeah. know if you've had experience with this. I've had, but... I've had a couple issues. Yeah. 
Yeah. And like where the person working the machine is supposed to like select either male or female, which is mm-hmm. part of why it creates a problem for some like trans and gender nonconforming folks. Yeah. Um, so like if you go through the machine and then your body doesn't like comport with, you know, wherever they decided to place you in this binary, yeah. it gets like considered an anomaly and you have to get patted down or essentially you become a security risk in that moment and like there are people who write about like trans identity as like a threat to the state and this feels like an interesting (laughs) sort of like metaphor for that yeah like you transition sorry to use that word but like you transition from just being someone who's like at the airport trying Mm -hmm. to get your flight to somebody who's a security risk right and like obviously there are other examples of that and intersections with other identities but like as a white person I'm less of a quote unquote security risk. So, but it, what it feels like it highlights for me is this desire to make human beings static and consistent using these ideas about sex and gender amongst other things. Mm-hmm. But the reality of course, is that humans are not static. We're always changing. And like the only guarantee in fact that we have about our bodies is that they will change. Yeah. And so I think it's something that's actually like kind of beautiful about transness, non-binariness, other kinds of like gender non-conformingness is that it like highlights that reality that that each of us does contain multitudes that like, I mean, whether or not we want to be, there are moments where to be in a trans body is to embody resistance to mm-hmm. a kind of violent regulation of identity. And so that's something that I think is is kind of amazing and resistant and, and works for me and my way of seeing the world. I like this idea of feeling like I I would get that for someone else. This might be something that would be like totally off-putting. I mean, it's risky. It's dangerous. It totally is. It totally is. Right. And like, that's again, why it feels important to acknowledge that like that has to be also related to the ways in which I experience privilege. You know, it's an opportunity, but it's also dangerous. And what are the ways in which I might feel like I can take that risk more than somebody else? Yeah. The other thing is that this is something that I struggle with a bit too, as someone who, who does this kind of, work a, a little bit in my writing. I'm not primarily focused on like sort of critiques of the state in my writing. Like I think it's rad. I love reading this stuff, but it doesn't often doesn't end up being central to um, the kinds of arguments that I'm trying to make in the context of Jewish community. Sure. Um, but I do feel a tension around what is my responsibility. I certainly feel like it's a responsibility I can take on to make these arguments in academic scholarship, but what is the kind of responsibility to also put one's body or oneself on the line? right? Like, what does it mean to be the, like, activist scholar? That is definitely something that comes up for me, feeling like, is it a cop-out, right, to write about something, but to not actually, I want to also put myself out there in whatever ways I I can as somebody who embodies privilege, and so that is something that I think, I, I certainly don't feel like I'm at any place of knowing what that means or what that looks like with certainty, but it's something I'm trying to figure out mm-hmm. constantly. And also when I live somewhere that is not in the thick of things, like yeah, it's I was really just hard when you're in the Midwest. Yeah. Because there are, you know, there are things happening, right? There are protests happening and I certainly like to think I would be there. But mm-hmm. if that, if I'm not on the front lines of some of these fights, particularly ones that are about Jewish community, which tend to be located in places like New York or, or maybe Los Angeles, Philadelphia or, you know, or Boston or just not small cities like the one I live in. So and often not the Midwest as well, um, because it tends to be a small Jewish population in the Midwest on top of the, all the other reasons why the Midwest gets overlooked just more broadly. Yeah, it is. It's a big question. A big question indeed. I am beyond thankful 
for everyone who contributed to this episode because these are people who are asking the big questions about how we show up for each other how our different oppressions are interconnected, how faith and gender and all the other wonderful facets of our beings intertwine to create whole persons and whole communities. We are not finished asking these questions either. We heard a little bit from Andy Thornton in this episode about solidarity between queer and disabled communities in particular, but we still haven't gotten to hear them go into detail about research they have done on exclusion and bigotry within queer spaces and within Christian spaces. I've decided to make that its own episode, which I will publish around mid-October. I'm thinking that that episode, plus another short episode at the end of the month talking about interfaith stuff a bit, will be what this podcast puts out for October, so stay tuned for those. That just about does it for this episode, except to thank my wonderful patrons over at patreon.com queerlychristian. To the incredible people who donate $12 or more every month, Jay Gebner, Adrian, Ron Hartzler, Willow Hovink, Thank you so much. Your generosity helps me pay the people who come on this show, as well as to engage in other work of education and solidarity. Alrighty, that's it for now. I pray that each of you finds the support you need for the journey towards wholeness and solidarity that we are all part of. If you've been mired in the work, be gentle with yourself. Find moments of rest and renewal. If you think there's more you could be doing, challenge yourself to find one more way to show up for others this coming month. Whatever you do, break some binaries and to be a blessing to the world with your life.